welcome to Spawned, a common sense and hopefully fun discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Liz Gumpener, and along with Kristen Chase, we are the co-founders of CoolMomPics.com. Kristen is away this week, but I've got a special guest, host of the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, Susie Chase. And she's going to help inspire me and all of us, hopefully, to cook a little more and a little better and a little smarter with a really unique perspective on cooking for families. And as always, we will close out our show with our cool picks of the week. So we'll get back to chatting with Susie right after this. This episode of Spawned is brought to you by Women's Army. The fitness industry has exploded, but women are still lacking great options. Women's Army is leading the charge with performance-based workout products and apparel that also happens to be very stylish, and it's all designed exclusively for women, whatever shape you're in, whatever size you are. After all, workout gear for women shouldn't be one style fits all. Whether you're a weekend warrior, a hardcore fitness guru, or athlete looking for that extra edge, or you just like going to the gym to lift some weights or take a class or two online right from home, Women's Army makes the gear that's fit for all women. Their debut product, Women's Army Non-Slip Yoga Socks, are designed specifically for Pilates, bar ballet, and dance. They're constructed from comfy, combed cotton for breathability and a silicon non-slip grip pad for traction on slippery floors. To learn more, visit womensarmyusa.com and you'll save 30% off your first pair of non-slip yoga socks. That's womensarmyusa.com for 30% off your first pair of socks. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit more about our amazing guest, Susie Chase. In 2015, she realized there weren't any podcasts devoted solely to cookbooks, which is amazing considering how many food podcasts there are. So... Since she's a devoted home cook and a mom of a 13-year-old son with a background in cookbook publicity, she merged all her loves and the Cookery by the Book podcast was born. It's now the number one cookbook podcast, and each week she sits down at her dining room table in her small NYC apartment, I know a little something about that, (laughs) talking to the most interesting cookbook authors and preparing one of the recipes in the book. I'm really excited to get to talk to her because I need some inspiration, and I know she's going to have a ton of it. So welcome, Susie. Thank you. Liz. Wow, that intro. You said it better than I could ever have said it. What? what? You say it all the time. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thanks for joining. I'm so glad. And we got to meet IRL a few months ago. And right away, I was like, you are the most energetic, amazing, cool woman. Like right away, I'm like, I really want you to be on our podcast. And our kids go to school at the same school, which is completely quirky. I know. What are the chances? So I got to run into you over pizza last week and everything. I'm so glad we get to do this finally. Yes. (laughs) So what I think is cool, I mean, first of all, just the whole idea of just talking to cookbook authors, it's such a niche thing and it works. I love the podcast so much. It's just so inspiring. It kind of reminds me of comedians in cars getting coffee, only it's like foodies at a dining room table talking cookbooks. (laughs) Oh my God, I love that show. And it gets me more excited to cook, like hearing from these really interesting authors and voices and cooks and chefs and they all have different perspectives. So do you hear from listeners that they get more excited to cook or is it kind of like that Food Network porn thing where they're like, watching, but not really cooking. It's not the Food Network porn thing. People get really, really inspired listening to a cookbook author tell their own story and their own background. And on every podcast, I talk about some dishes that I've made. And I'm just a home cook. My mom never taught me to cook. So I am learning along with the listeners. I think that's what makes it so interesting, too, is it doesn't feel like super foodie references. Like, it's very accessible. And you've really talked 
talk to all different kinds of people. I want to talk about a few of the episodes that are particularly relevant to parents so that if they want to like jump into your massive archives and figure out where to start, they'll know. But first, just tell me a little bit about people who read cookbooks, because I know these days a lot of parents are really just relying on online recipes. So who's buying cookbooks right now? So I think it's more about the books than the people. From what I've heard, there's something special about leafing through a cookbook. And there's something really great about having the cookbook sitting on your counter. While people are looking at recipes on the internet and maybe in a pinch finding a recipe, they're still going out and buying cookbooks. I never thought about it that way, but that makes sense. Like, I like to read books, so it would make sense that I really enjoy reading cookbooks. You know, like when I look at the James Beard winners every year for best food writing, I always want to go out and read those books because it's storytelling, isn't it? Totally. And that's why I like it. I really focus on the story, especially if it's like a cultural story or like something very personal to that cookbook author. I love to focus on that. And I think the thing I like about cookbooks also, and you really cover this because you have such a breadth of guests on your podcast, is that it really opens us up to other cultures and other lives, other experiences through this one shared universal experience of food and eating, which is something we all do. So are there some ways in which your mind has been kind of opened or expanded through a lifetime of working with cookbook authors? Well, the thing I love about this is that it opens you up to other cultures. And so what we've learned is that we're more similar than different. We all love our children. We all love to sit around with our family and enjoy a good meal. And no matter if we speak different languages, we all love the same things. I love that. And, you know, there was a really good example of that. You did an interview with Priya Krishna, who wrote Indian-ish yep. recipes and antics from a modern American family. And I was laughing so hard when she was saying how she was brainstorming titles. And one of them was Cool Mom Recipes. I, I was know. Like, oh, yeah, we already got that covered. <laughs> But but she was really just talking about like why Indian food isn't exotic or difficult. And it was really about her mom and her cookbook cover is really cool, too. It's like Rosie the Riveter, only Indian. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because Priya grew up in Dallas. So she's taken her mom's very traditional recipes and riffed off of them. It's interesting. The next generation, how they're interpreting recipes. Yeah, I think I mean, that to me is always really special when people are passing stuff down from their parents or grandparents. There's just so much soul and love that goes into it. And it just feels different than someone who works in like a test kitchen, you know, when it comes from personal experience. And it, it becomes, I don't know, to me, recipes are like an heirloom. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I have my mom's old recipes and there's something about cooking with them and it brings you closer to your family and it makes you think about yesterday and people who are gone. Do you have like a favorite recipe that your family likes that was passed down? I know you have a fascinating family history, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> you do. <laughs> you know, what's funny is I grew up in Kansas. My mom was very meat and potatoes. So I don't have any like my mom's favorite pie or anything. Basically, a steak and a good potato reminds me of my mom's cooking. <laughs> but I think that's really cool because I think there's a lot of people that would think that, oh, you know, you're you're in with like all these huge chefs and cookbook authors that you would be like, yeah, it's this really fancy, fabulous thing with these 80 ingredients I have to get from a specialty shop in Queens. But, <laughs> but I think that's what makes it so accessible. You're like, I'm just a meat and potatoes lady. <laughs> yeah. And I'm learning right along with you. So are there any interviews that really like 
like stand out to you? I mean, you've done what, like 170 or something? 160. 160. Wow. So like, uh, like almost what we did. And I know a few of ours cycle through my head over and over. How about you? Like just some just stand out to you as being really special or like you, you always have them in mind when you're cooking? I think there's been an overall thought with cookbook authors lately that, you know what, it doesn't have to be perfect. I can't point to just one cookbook author, but that's been kind of a theme lately where just get in there and do what you can. It doesn't have to look Instagrammable. It just has to taste good and you have to love it. I'm all for it doesn't have to be Instagrammed. (laughs) Someone who's not a professional cook. So listen, let's talk about some tips that you've picked up that you think will be particularly helpful for busy parents who are feeding their kids. Because I'll be honest, there's some cookbooks I've gotten rid of over the years, like the Four Seasons Cookbook. I'm like, this is so fabulous. It's such an iconic restaurant. But then you realize if you don't have like a professional chef and three sous chefs and people to clean up, you cannot make any of those recipes. So I'm really interested in the stuff that's accessible and helpful that parents can actually do. Okay, my top pick for parents is from Rana Welsh. She wrote The Nimble Cook, and she says to take an inventory of what's in your fridge and hang the list on your fridge door, which sounds like, wow, why didn't I think of that? It takes a little bit of time, but it saves so much time in the end. That's so, I never thought of that. I know, I didn't either. It's like an after shopping list, <laughs> like everything you already have. Yes, totally. That's fabulous. I don't know, I can't believe I've never heard that before. Thank you, Rana. That's really good. So what what else is helpful, do you think, to parents that stands out? So Sarah Copeland, so cute. She wrote Every Day is Saturday. She had a take on being a busy mom. She says it's not about perfection, which, as I said, it's, it's a theme that I've been hearing this year. She says to make something big on the weekends, and then you have more time during the week. She calls them projects on, like, a Sunday, like a pork shoulder, and then you can use it for tacos on, let's say, Monday night. Oh, I think that's really smart. It's funny because I think some parents kind of do the opposite. Like, on Sunday, they kind of meal prep for all these big meals during the week and then the weekends they just order in pizza or they're too tired but actually I like the idea of swapping that because you have like more energy and more time and you're not so rushed and you're not stressed about the kids getting up at six the next morning unless they play soccer (laughs) and what's worse than meal prep I do have to ask like no one wants to meal prep. Well, it, actually, it's good to hear that from you because on um, <laughs> on Cool Mom Eats, every Friday we do a weekly meal plan where we give people ideas for five recipes for the week ahead. And it's often either around like seasonal produce or what's good in the stores right now or stuff you can do under $15 a meal, things like that. And it's so popular. Like of all our newsletters we send out, that is the one that people just love the most because I think parents are desperate. Like, do you struggle with that yourself? Desperate. Yeah. Well, it's hard to think on the fly when your kid's like, I'm hungry. Okay. (laughs) So it's great to have some go-tos. Do you have things that are always in your fridge? I have, let me think. That's a toughie. Like I'm like the classic New York City foodie who doesn't cook that much. Like I'm filled with condiments. I have like seven different kinds of mustards and eight marmalades. (laughs) So I'll be like, oh, we have no vegetables, but we have a lot of kinds of mustards. You know, I'm cooking so much that my fridge is usually full of ingredients that I need for those recipes for the next couple of days. So there aren't like 25 things of mustard in my fridge. It's basically recipe ingredients. Oh, interesting. So you really do meal planning and like you pick out groceries for the week ahead and then work off that? Yeah, because I always make recipes out of the cookbook before I talk to the cookbook author. So I'm constantly cooking out of 
cookbooks. Ooh, so do you make that for just you or does your whole family get to reap the benefits? No, my whole, they love it. My son and my husband just love it. Is your son a good eater? He is. Well, he's had to be because I say, you know, I'm not making anything else. So here you go. Oh God, you're lucky. (laughs) I have a very, let's say discriminating eater who goes to school with him and, you know, she'll eat five things as long as they're beige basically. And I, yeah, I don't short order cook either, but she'll just be like, okay, I won't eat. (laughs) So I've learned to kind of work around her. I know it's tough, but I know I'm not alone. We've done a lot of episodes about picky eaters. And so these tips are super helpful. So what else? What's like another tip that you've picked up that you think would be helpful? Anything else? So Hetty McKinnon, who lives in Brooklyn, you probably know her. She wrote a cookbook called Family. She makes this super fast stir fried lettuce bowl with ginger fried rice and a fried egg. And it's basically how it sounds. That sounds fantastic. Everyone loves it. And if you have kids who hate kale, and I happen to hate kale, it's (laughs) awesome. The lettuce is so nice and warm and soft, and you can whip it up in two seconds. You know what? This is so funny because I thought I hated kale. And this week I had a friend who took me out to the Beatrice Inn in the West Village. Have you been there? Yes. It's right around the corner from me. Yes. I figured you've been there. And so you need to have the chef on your show, by the way. She's amazing. She took over the place three years ago and she served a black kale salad that was like the most amazing salad I've ever had. And I don't like kale. So I'm like, okay, my mind has changed. I mean, it's all about the dressing. We know that. It's totally about the dressing, but I have to go there. She just put a cookbook out. Yes, too. she did. Exactly. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. You're gonna you're gonna have to have her on. So anyway, I'm gonna make a date with you and we're gonna go there for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> it was that good. So listen, are there any trends you're seeing in recipes these days? Because after writing about food for a while, we start to see copycat coffee recipes are big and then, you know, like everything avocado or everything kale. What are you seeing right now? Well, I think last year it seemed like bowls were the big thing. Olivia oh, yeah. Mac McCool um, has this darling cookbook called Lunch and she stocks her fridge with components to make a satisfying meal in a bowl. So she'll have like grains or rice noodles with veggies and a dressing. So that's all around bowls. But I think this year it's platters. I've seen a lot of that. I just interviewed the couple behind Honey & Co. They're in London. They have this tuna dip that just comes out of a can, can of tuna. You can dip potatoes in it, hard-boiled eggs and broccolini. And I made it the other night and it was literally the whole meal. You don't have to make anything else. It's so filling. Oh, that's so interesting. And for our listeners, we will link all of this up on our podcast page at Kumon Picks. So you'll be able to find it. We'll link to all these episodes and hopefully all the cookbooks that you're mentioning so that people can easily find these things. But yeah, I'm with you on the platters. That's a really big thing. And I have a grazing family. And I think that also helps parents of picky eaters where everybody kind of eats different things. Like Kristen has four kids. They've got six mouths to feed. And if everybody doesn't eat exactly the same thing, platters can be really helpful to parents. Like, I don't think we have to feel like we have to have, you know, a big protein and a big side dish and a big salad. It can be a lot of little things too. Totally. I just interviewed Allison Roman last week for her new cookbook that's coming out called Nothing Fancy. And she said, look, you're not running a restaurant. So... (laughs) Let that go and just make a big platter of food that everyone can graze off of. What's nothing fancy like? I haven't read about it, but it sounds just the title alone sounds like my kind of cookbook. Well, it's really good. And they're quick meals that are satisfying and so delicious, just like everything Allison makes. Like, did you ever make the stew that went viral? The chickpea stew? Nope. 
I have never made a stew. Well, it wasn't really a stew. <laughs> it's like a curry, but people said it wasn't a curry because it's not really a curry. But it's basically coconut milk, onions, turmeric, some sort of stock, chicken or vegetable, and chickpeas. Oh my gosh, so that's how I. You know what? I have seen that, and I've always flagged that as like this sounds amazing. The problem is again, like my kids probably won't eat it, so I have to wait for a time when it's just me and my partner, and we can have like a grown-up dinner. So your kids wouldn't even eat it; they wouldn't even try it because mm. my kid tried it and he loved it. My my older one was. She's like now doing like calamari and duck and she's like gotten more adventurous. She'll at least try things even if she doesn't like them. My younger one, no, very limited. But like that, you know what? I was like that when I was a kid. So I've just decided not to make it my issue. Like there's other things to fight about. And as long as she's growing and not falling off the weight scale at the... Oh, yeah. <laughs> like like off the weight chart at the doctor's, like I'm going to be okay with it. But still, you know, I know a lot of parents, like we see that a lot. We have a Facebook group. Susie, you have to join if you haven't been in there. It's called oh, Recipe Rescue. And it's really a non-judgy, helpful, nice community of, it's like almost 4,000 people now. And it's just people helping each other out with feeding conundrums and picky kids and recipe help and, you know, people saying stuff like, I have a huge thing of kale, but I don't want to make a salad. What should I do? Or I need vegan recipes, but I don't want stuff that feels like a side dish that I just served as a dinner. And then all these people jump in and they're so helpful and nice and non-judgy and it's like a really good place. And and one of the biggest things is definitely picky kids. Well, I love that because oftentimes parents have things that work for their kids. So you think, okay, I'm going to try that. Yeah, because you never know what's going to work. Like you kind of have you to try everything. Know. So, okay, I love that. Okay, so chickpeas are really hot right now. Um, so hot. That's good because I do, I like chickpeas. And actually my kids like hummus, so they might be... They might be open to that. There you go. Let me talk about a few other episodes that I think are really relevant to families that I wanted to flag. And maybe you can give us a few takeaways from the episodes. We already talked about Indianish with Priya Krishna because I thought that was phenomenal. Another one that's really interesting. Well, I love Anita Lowe because I loved her restaurants in the city. I know. She's I'm amazing. I'm so sad it's gone. I know. I'm super sad. But I understand, you know, she had a lot of reasons for shutting it down. But she wrote what was Eater's Cookbook of the Year last year, Solo, a modern cookbook for a party of one. And I thought that was really interesting. And I know she wrote it from a chef's perspective, like she's cooking just for herself. But it's such a clever idea for parents of young kids because we tend to just like finish our kids mac and cheese or, you know, stand eating at the counter and nibbling while we're cooking for the kids, especially when they're little, instead of like really taking the time to nourish and nurture ourselves. Yes. Well, her recipes are like chef level easy recipes for one or two. Like she has a smart recipe for a frittata and you can make a frittata for two if it's just you and your kid hanging around in the evening and you can throw in any kind of veggies that you want and the cleanup is so easy. This is really a good cook. Cleanup is a big deal. It's you okay, you'll laugh. So my youngest, she's still scared of like hot pans and pots for some reason. I don't know why it makes her nervous. So I'm pushing her to like cook a little more so that she won't be nervous. And so we were making quesadillas, which are very basic, but I thought that was like a good place to start. And she was saying, you know, I gotta be honest, the reason I don't like to do it that that much is that I don't want to have to clean the pan. <laughs> and so I showed her how if you clean it immediately after that it wipes clean in like one minute. It's that when she lets it sit there for three days before I have to yell at her that it's a problem. <laughs> well, Allison Roman has a tip in her new cookbook too: clean your kitchen and get everything organized before you cook. So, hey, if you cook the dinner and you don't want to clean up that night, you can just leave it in the sink and then do it tomorrow when you have energy, but it won't mess up the whole kitchen. Oh, I like that. So that's kind of smart too. Yeah. Because when you, when you come into a messy kitchen, like you don't, 
want to be in there. It's not inviting. It's like a messy bedroom, right? Oh, it's such right? a bummer. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, especially like in New York City, I have a teeny tiny kitchen. So it can look messy in one second. Do you have a two-butt kitchen? My friend used to call them two-butt kitchens. <laughs> like with like the little galley kitchens in the West Village where you can only fit like two butts in there. I mind. think mine's a one-butt. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just be like, I can't uh, eat that much pasta or like my one butt won't fit in here either. We're lucky we have like a more open kitchen, but we don't have like a lot of counter space. So yeah, New Yorkers have a weird relationship with their kitchens for sure. But my dad, like you, I mean, he's an amazing, amazing home cook. He like takes every cooking class he can go to and he's taken James Beard classes and he has the teeniest kitchen you can imagine, but like makes these outrageous meals out of it. So you don't have to have a big like the house beautiful kitchen. <laughs> But I would love it. Yeah, I know. Wouldn't we all? <laughs> <laughs> like the little things we pine for in New York, like a second bathroom, a kitchen. I know. So the other book I really thought was interesting, and it's funny, I hadn't encountered this, but it sounds so brilliant, is Sarah Dickerman wrote Secrets of Great Second Meals, all about leftovers. And she had a line in the podcast where she said she's about letting one meal inform the next. And I thought that was a really kind of beautiful way to look at leftovers or redefine them. Like, what do you think was helpful about her book for parents? I think it shows you how to reframe your thinking in that I am going to make this big dish that I can repurpose to something else instead of just like, I'm making one dinner tonight and that's it. You can make chicken soup and then you can use the chicken for tacos or use the chicken for sandwiches later, that kind of thing. I think that's so great. I mean, I know that's always been helpful with our readers is when we're doing posts on, you know, what you can do with one chicken. Like you get one chicken and you can basically use it all week. You can do so much with it. And we're really conscientious about waste these days. Like, are you seeing that as a trend? Like people trying to kind of make the most out of the food and the, the products that they buy? Oh, totally. Using like the carrot tops and every part of the vegetable is a huge trend. Ooh, that's a good one too. Did somebody write a cookbook on that? There's got to be one called like every part of the vegetable. If not, you should pitch it. <laughs> <laughs> I did see though that you interviewed someone about, this was so fascinating to me, all desserts made from vegetables. Yeah. It was called Vegetable Cakes. Yes. That was the kookiest cookbook I think I've ever done. <laughs> it was really different. But you know, she made a really good point. She's like, we make zucchini bread and carrot cake and those things are sweet. Yes. We make pumpkin bread and pumpkin pie. That's a vegetable. And so I actually, it, you know, it's not like you're making broccoli cupcakes necessarily, but I thought it was really interesting. I know. And she was way into it too. Yeah. Well, she wrote a whole cookbook on it, so I don't blame her. (laughs) But, you know, the other thing I like is that you have, it's not all like fancy pants, foodies, and restaurant chefs. Like, you did a talk with um, Jan Miller, who's the editor of Better Homes and Garden Cookbook, and you talked to Kathy Swanson, who is the executive editor of the Betty Crocker and the Pillsbury Cookbooks, and she had done the cookbook Learn with Betty this year. Tell me about that because that must be really different than talking to say Anita Lowe. So I take a lot of time to curate a good mix of different cookbooks, not just like the New York Times top 10 this year. And I really wanted to talk to Jan about the Better Homes and Gardens cookbook because we all have one. We all grew up with one. And then Kathy Swanson, I mean, she's Betty Crocker and Pillsbury. What's more iconic than that? People love it and it's homey. And I, I would really like to remind people that there are such great recipes that work in these cookbooks. I like hearing that because I think there can be like a snobbishness, like when you say Betty Crocker, but like I think we all pretty much 
much grew up with it. And there's some really good stuff in there. And and hearing from her was interesting because you can really tell they really test everything and make sure it's great. And I do know one of the complaints that people hear sometimes from food bloggers. I love food bloggers. I think there are so many like brilliant recipe creators online. But there's some stuff that just looks great or is photographed well or has like a catchy name to the recipe, but it's really not tested well. And it's a mess. Totally. And like at <laughs> Betty Crocker, they'll bake a cake in different ovens and they just have it covered. Oh, that's right. They do. They'll cook in like different ovens and different altitudes because if you're cooking in a Viking range with a convection oven, it's going to come out really different. Totally. And if you're cooking in like a 15-year-old Whirlpool or something. Yeah. So they even make <laughs> ovens? I have no idea. You can tell I have the snotty, I I have the snotty Viking range. <laughs> I don't know. So the other thing I like is the storytelling cookbooks. Like, that's probably my favorite. Like I said, I'm a writer and I'm a reader and I love storytelling. So one of my favorite episodes, like, I listen to every single word because sometimes I skip around or speed up when I'm listening to podcasts. It's the only way I can get everything in. But I loved your talk with Adrian Miller of Soul Food Scholar. He wrote The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who have fed our first families. That was like, it was a history lesson. I adore him. So every season, I choose one book that's not a cookbook, but something that's food-based and something that piques my interest. And this was my pick two years ago. It was so interesting how reliant the presidents were on their African-American chefs. Some of whom were enslaved people, by the way. Right? Most of them, yeah. Yeah. And like George Washington's enslaved chef was named Hercules, and he knew how to make the best French cuisine. James Hemings was Jefferson chef. He was trained in classic French cooking, too. This cracked me up. Roosevelt was on a really strict diet, but his two chefs, Lizzie McDuffie and Daisy Bonner, would make the dish prescribed if they had a big dinner party. But after dinner, they would hook him up with some pig's feet and southern food in the kitchen. <laughs> So awesome. It was so good. It's a really good story. And I think it's like an important lesson and understanding our leaders' relationships with African American cooks and enslaved people who worked for them or, you know, had to work for them, I should say. And it's like really interesting to look at history through the lens of food or food through the lens of history. I just loved every word of that episode. It's fascinating. And and his whole site is great. So Soul Food Scholar. It's amazing. He's putting together a new book about Black pioneers in barbecue. Ooh, so I can't wait for that. Hot tip. Yeah. That sounds good. I would love that. Um, The other chat I was fascinated by was with Marianne Nestle. Everybody says Nestle, but Nestle, right? Yeah, it's Nestle. Uh -huh. And she had just written The Unsavory Truth, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat. For those of you who don't know her, she's a public health professor and a nutritionist and a consumer advocate. And let's just say from that interview, she is not a fan of Coca-Cola. <laughs> well, it was so eye-opening. Coca-Cola is pretty insidious because... It has funded some huge studies that surprisingly have turned out to favor Coke. What are the chances? <laughs> I know. Isn't that interesting? And they also gave $2 million to the Boys and Girls Clubs. And so Coke vending machines are like in every Boys and Girls Club, yeah. which is awful. I remember studying that way back when, I think when Fast Food Nation first came out, uh -huh. they were doing it with public schools. They were giving schools that didn't have a lot of money, tons of money, and not just Coke. And then as part of the deal, they had to put machines all over. And I remember one part of the book, they were talking about 
um, did you read Fast Food Nation? Do you remember it? It's yes. so good. It was a while ago. But it, this stayed with me. I remember when they talked about how if a school was not selling enough of the sugary soda product, whatever brand it may be, in the vending machines, then the representatives would come in and talk to the school. Like, mm-hmm. well, you need to move it closer to the classrooms and not just in the cafeteria. You need to allow the drinking of soda in classes and not ban drinks from classes. Like in elementary schools, too. It was, I mean... I know that's changed a lot in the last 15 years, but it was mind-blowing. I know. I blame them because my uh, lunch of choice in high school was a Diet Coke and a Twix. Oh, that was so. me, but with a regular Coke, full sugar. I lo- Look, I love Coke. I got to be honest. Like, I love Coke, too. There was a famous chef who once said, you know, he was asked his favorite food, and he said, there's nothing better than a really ice-cold Coke on a hot day, which I thought was interesting. Totally. So I get it, but, like, it's good to know about the companies we buy from. So when you talk to someone like Mary Nestle, does it change how you perceive food? Does it change your habits in any way? Well, with Mary Nestle, it changed how I saw these studies, you know, the studies that come out that says, you know, the superfood or this is a superfood or that's a superfood. She said, always look and see who funded this study. And that really kind of resonated with me. What was crazy about Marion, though, is that Coca-Cola representatives are always sitting in her talks. Oh, yeah, she said. Mm -hmm. She said she doesn't blame them because if she were a set of representatives, she'd want to know what she was saying, too. I know. Yeah, I mean, well, good. I don't think, like, everything is nefarious. I think sometimes they're doing studies because they want to learn. But certainly when you hear that chocolate is really good for you, there was some chocolate company that probably had a hand in funding that research. Definitely. (laughs) And how we think about how dark chocolate is so healthy for you, she said, no, that's a bunch of bull. because some chocolate, Nestle or something, funded that. So since you've spent the last four years interviewing cookbook authors every week, and how long before that were you a cookbook publicist? Um, three years, and I came to New York City to be a cookbook publicist. Wow. So this is like most of your adult life, which is amazing. So how does that change how you approach home cooking for your own family? I think the biggest change is I feel more confident in my tiny West Village kitchen. I feel more confident tackling a recipe. That's really basically it. Well, my dad, who I said was like this amazing chef, and I'm a much more reluctant and not as confident cook. He said the only way to get better is to just keep doing it. That you mess up and then the next time you mess up less and the next time you're like, oh, wow, I have a perfect recipe. And I think sometimes we're so intimidated to try new things because we're scared we're going to waste these ingredients or waste the night or we're going to end up throwing it all out and serving peanut butter sandwiches. Yes, (laughs) totally. Like, don't be scared. Just try it. And if that doesn't work out, then you might want to tweak it and make something different. I like that. Well, my older daughter, actually, she's really into baking. She likes watching those um, like food hack videos on Instagram and then comes home and has to try everything. She convinced me to make macarons with her. She did it the first time with her grandmother, with my mom. And she said they had some issues and she she realized what she had to do differently. And so we followed this one recipe we found to a tea. They were perfect. I, cu- I could not believe they tasted like wow. the best, like lingerie. They were amazing, amazing. Oh my gosh. They were so good. I couldn't believe like me. Like I'm like, this came out of my oven. This came out of my house. Perfect. Like beautiful robin's egg blue <laughs> macarons. So that to me was like, okay, if I can do this, anyone can do this. It really was just a matter of being like not taking shortcuts on the recipe. Yeah, totally. That's huge. I know. I'm going to make you some. Okay. I'd love it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, listen, I really, really hope our listeners, if you're interested in cooking or if you're just interested in like great 
interesting human interest stories, take a listen to Cookery by the Book. It's Susie Chase's podcast. It is so good and so fun and just like a breath of fresh air with all that's crazy in the world these days. So tell us where we can find you. So you can find me at Cookery by the Book on Instagram. You can subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. You can hear the podcast on cookerybythebook.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. It's everywhere. Yay. Well, I, I hope you got some new listeners because I think it's just fabulous and you can count me among them. So Susie, you're going to stick around for Cool Picks of the Week? You betcha. Fabulous. So it's time for Cool Picks of the Week. Cool Picks of the Week. And Susie, as our guest, you get to go first. So this shop, Francis Valentine, was started by Kate Spade after she sold Kate Spade to Coach. I adore a good canvas tote, and she makes this darling, super big tote called the Margaret Tote. It has Poe on it. It's her cute little dog. <gasps> I just looked it up. I'm dying. This is the it's cutest so thing cute. I've ever seen. So she's from Kansas City, where I'm from, and my mom and her mom were really great friends. So when she was off in New York City, her mom would come over to our house and say, oh, Katie's doing this and Katie's doing that. And it was so awesome. Her mom was super influential in my interior design style, too. So I love this bag, and I miss her so much. Oh, and that's fabulous. Thank you for darling. supporting a woman maker. Like, that's so in our wheelhouse. And this is really cute. We will link it up on Cool Mom Picks on the podcast page. Great. And by the way, it's 50% off right now. So hopefully it, it is. still is when this runs, because that's amazing. Okay, so since we're talking about food today, my cool pick, this is something I never in a million years thought I would like. Susie, I am a coffee snob. Like, I have become one of those people who's like, oh, it's the crema is isn't as rich as it should be. <laughs> like, I like really good coffee. But uh -oh. there's a PR person who sent me a bunch of coffees from a company called Vita Cup. Have you heard of this? No. And it's an infused coffee. And there are these different blends that have vitamins and things for various benefits. And I'm always skeptical of this kind of stuff. There's, like, one that supports, like, healthy lifestyle and living. There's one with probiotics that tastes a little like vanilla. It has aloe in it. But the one I've been drinking this week it's called Vitacup Infused Coffee, the Genius Blend. How could I resist? <laughs> and it's made with MCT oil, cinnamon, turmeric, vitamins, and antioxidants. It's like a medium roast coffee. It's kind of a complex, interesting flavor because the turmeric and the cinnamon, at first I was like, eh, I don't know if I could have two cups of this, but one cup. You know what? I really am looking forward to drinking it every morning. It gives me like this different kind of energy boost. It's not like that shaky caffeine, too much caffeine thing. It like just makes you feel energized. Like it really works. Huh. So I've been enjoying it very much. So I know they come in K-cups. I'm not a K-cup person. I'm trying to be a little more eco-responsible, but they also sell them as um, just coffee grounds. So you can put them through your espresso machine or I just do a pour over these days and I'm really liking it. So it's Vitacup Infused Coffee, the genius blend, and we will link that up on our podcast as well. I'm going to check that out. You should. They're really, you know what? I'll bring you some next time I see yeah. you. <laughs> Awesome. Well, that's it. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Spawned. Huge thanks to our engineer, John Bowen. And hey, there are a few things you can do to help support us and spread the word about Spawned. First of all, just subscribe. Click that little subscribe button right now on whatever device you are listening to. It's super easy. You can also download our episodes so you can listen offline. And hey, thanks so much for all the nice reviews you've been leaving, especially those five-star reviews. I admit we are a little partial to them. But honestly, the best thing you can do to help support us and keep us independent is to tell a friend or family member about our podcast. 
Anyone you think would love Spawn, whether they're a mom, a dad, or not even close, we take all types. <laughs> and if you're a listener, then hey, you're already part of our Spawn podcast community. But to make it official, join us on Facebook. Just search for the Spawn podcast community, and we'd love to have you there. You can join us in our private group to chat about everything we talk about here and, well, anything else you want to chat about, anything you want to know, any articles you want to share. We are chatty, and we love listening to our listeners, too. Thank you so much for listening to Spawn. This is Liz. Kristen will be back next week. Have a great day. Bye.